Okay, let's have a quiz. <clears throat> Those that receive sermon notes can get ready to fill in the blanks. Who can guess the following? The books of the Old Testament. 39. 39 books in the Old Testament. Books in the New Testament. 27. 27 books in the New Testament. Total number of books? 66. Chapters in the Old Testament? 929. Chapters in the New Testament? 260. Total number of chapters? 1,189. Verses in the Old Testament? 33,214. Verses in the New Testament? 7,959. Total number of verses? 41,173. Words in the Old Testament? 593,393. Words in the New Testament, 181,253. Total number of words, 774,746. Letters in the Old Testament, 2,738,100. Letters in the New Testament, 838,380. Total number of letters, 3,566,480. The shortest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 117. Psalm 117. Now, what book, chapter, and verse contains all the letters of the alphabet except J? Ezra 721. Ezra 721. Longest verse in the Bible? Esther 8 9 is the longest verse in the Bible. Shortest verse in the Bible. John 11.35 is the shortest verse. John chapter 11, verse 35. Fun fact, there is no word more than six syllables in the Bible. We are now in a new sermon series, and I have thought about verses that I have been convicted to pray. These are passages and verses which God has convicted me to pray for myself, my children, and my descendants. Now, the question is, is this about me? It should not about, be about me. I want this sermon series to be about scriptures that God has convicted me to pray. These are scriptures which God has laid on my heart to pray. It's not about my prayer. It's not about my verbiage. It's about the word of God which we pray to God. You know, I've been sitting in my office talking with people. And I think this has happened on repeated occasions. They tell me about their children and say something like, I'm going to let them choose their own which faith. I'm going to let them choose on their own which faith to follow. Now, ultimately, our children, our grandchildren, they need to make their faith their own. And if they're Christians, they need to make that their own faith. But these people use that as an excuse not to teach their children the Bible or Christianity, or theology. Now, you must know that up until this point, the conversation was going very well. Very well. They are agreeing that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They are believing scriptures like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. They're believing John 14.6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. 
Now, how can you believe that and not want your kids to believe that? Do you realize what a contradiction and a lie that is? Now, there are different mistakes here. And one is, many times, even for us, our Christian life is a little illogical. It lacks some reason. We believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. We believe John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. We believe the Bible is inspired God-breathed word of God. We want our children to believe this. If we believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, this is how salvation is exclusive and inclusive. Salvation is exclusive by Jesus alone. But salvation is inclusive that anyone can go to heaven through the, through the grace of Jesus Christ. When we believe this stuff, why aren't we opening our Bible with our children and grandchildren more? Why aren't we having family devotions? Why aren't we studying the Bible together? Well, there's another problem, another, another mistake. Many times I'm talking to mothers and not fathers. And the father is called to be the spiritual leader, leader of the home, not the mother. Now, if you are a mother and the father is not, then maybe it falls to you. But the father is in sin and needs to repent. But fathers, let me tell you, we need to look at 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, I don't want my prayers hindered, do you? So men, we got to straighten up, and we got to take our job as a spiritual leader seriously. In all of us, we got to desire and pray, pray, pray. Prayer is the most important thing we can do. We got to pray that our children accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it first must start with us being disciples of Christ all the time. Today, let's talk about loving the Lord, loving others, and His Word. My theme and application pray we and our children are disciples, loving the Lord, people, and the word. Pray that we and our children are disciples, loving the Lord, people, and the word. In some scriptures we'll look at, 2 Timothy 2.15, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, I encourage you to look up later, but we won't look at it today, in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Let's read first Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And he said to him, that's Jesus. Jesus is saying to this man, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We must, we, we must love the Lord with all of our heart in all of our being, and we must love our neighbor as ourself. Let's talk more about Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. My prayer is that we will live this passage. I pray this for you as a congregation. I pray this for myself. I pray this for Mercedes and Abigail. I pray this for my descendants not yet born. I will pray like this. Lord, I pray that Mercedes and Abigail... We'll live out Matthew 22, 37 through 39. That they will love you and love their neighbor as themselves. I ask that we will remember from the parable of the Good Samaritan that even our enemy is our neighbor. And that is in Luke 10. Now, it's not about my prayer. It's about the scripture being prayed. It's not about me. It's about the word of God. The best thing we can do is pray. And the best thing we can pray is the Bible, is the word. Now, I'd love to take apart that passage more, and so I will. Just a little. 
If my prayer is that I live this passage and my children live out this passage, then I should know the passage. In the previous verse, Jesus is asked as a test, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? That is verses 34 through 36. In verse 34, verse 34, it says that the Sadducees were silenced by Jesus. They were silenced. Jesus had such wise answers that they could not trap him. So then they came with another question. Don't miss that. It is so important to note the Sadducees were silenced. These experts in the law were silenced by Jesus. He had such wisdom. Don't miss that. It's so easy to miss that. They sent a lawyer or a religious lawyer to trap him. They wanted him to choose a law. Which one of the Ten Commandments is most important? In verse 37, verse 37, Jesus responds. It is interesting that Jesus did respond. Jesus did not have to respond. Jesus chose to respond. Why did Jesus respond? A question that I must ask is, do I respond when questioned? Do I respond in a defensive way? It is really valuable to be able to respond without being aggressive. It is so important as Christians to be able to respond without being aggressive. To respond lovingly. A soft voice turns away wrath is what the proverb says. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within you and do so with gentleness and respect. Gentleness. Gentleness is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus could have just ignored the guy. He's, he, he's God in the flesh, he's, but he chose to respond, and he responded in gentleness. Actually, in Luke chapter 10, which is likely another account of a different question, though similar, he responds with a parable. He took time to explain it, but it's so easy for me to just want to respond with sarcastic, unloving, aggressive answers. As I said, you can look at Luke 10, verses 30 through 37, and Jesus follows this up with the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a different question during a different occasion. Still, the passage is truth, that even our enemy is our neighbor. Our enemy, we need to love our enemies as well. Matthew 22, verse 37 is a quote from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5, which we studied a few weeks ago. Verse 39 Verse 39 is a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Again, I pray this because I believe we need God's help to live this. I pray this because I believe it is in our interest to live this passage. Living this passage is God's way. And God's way is best. And my way is not. Living this passage, living God's way is always, always best for society as well. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, in all of our mind. Jesus used the word mind, the word mind. When Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, used the word strength, strength. We are to love others. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We take care of ourselves, and we must take care of our neighbor's needs. We must love his word. We must love God's word. So I pray that myself and my descendants and my church, we love God with all of our being, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, recognizing even our enemy is our neighbor. And my prayer also is that we love his word. The Bible is inspired word of God. John Quincy Adams, John Quincy Adams said, 
I have for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once a year. My custom is to read four or five chapters every morning, immediately after rising from my bed. It employs about an hour of my time and seems to me the most suitable manner of beginning the day. In what light soever we regard the Bible, whether with reference to revelation, to history, or to morality, it is an invaluable and inexhaustible mine of knowledge and virtue. I have prayed something like the following. Lord, I ask that Megan and I, Mercedes and Abigail, and all of our descendants will hold true to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I ask that we will understand that all scripture is God-breathed. That means it's inspired. And so it's useful for teaching, reproving, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that they are thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is useful because it comes from God. It's God's word. However, loving the word of God has been a conviction from other scriptures too. Psalm 119.11. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I believe this passage is about memorizing the Bible, but more than memorizing, I think this passage is about making the Bible a part of me. The Bible is God's word. We saw that in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And so it must follow that if I make the Bible a part of me, I am making God a part of me. Now, he already is a part of me, that when I received him, I received the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts 2, 38 and John chapters 14 through 17. But as I make his word a part of me, his character, his character is becoming a part of me. It's like Romans 12, 1 through 2. We are, be trans, be, we are being transformed. We are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. God is transforming us. He's, he's metamorphosizing us. We've got to make the word of God a part of us. It's not unlike a child working in the workshop with his father. And then the child grows up and his father has died. But that child, now a man, is working in the workshop, hearing his father's voice, telling him exactly what to do. We, in making the scriptures a part of us, can hear our heavenly father's voice as we live from day to day. How did Jesus respond to temptation? He responded with the scriptures, Matthew 4. He responded to the devil himself with the scriptures, with the Bible, three times. Prayer is also one of the most intimate activities we are involved in. We must pray scripture. We must, we must love the word of God. We must value the scriptures. And we must submit to the scriptures and surrender. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian killed by the Nazis in World War II. There's a great biography about him out right now. He was a brilliant man who would, who would not cave to the Nazis. Many other German churches were going along with Hitler's anti-Semitic comments, but he would not. He was trying to organize churches that stayed true to the scripture. There was a time that he came to New York City to study. His impressions of our American church were not good. By this time, Bonhoeffer, in his lower 20s, Bonhoeffer is in his lower 20s and has almost, if not, completed his PhD. And he wrote, The union students talk a blue streak without the slightest foundation and with no evidence of any criteria. They are unfamiliar with even the most basic questions. They become intoxicated with liberal and humanistic phrases. They laugh at the fundamentalist and yet basically are not even up to their level. On another, on another occasion, he wrote, in New York, they preach about virtually everything. 
Only one thing is not addressed, or is addressed so rarely that I have as yet been unable to hear it. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, sin and forgiveness, death and life. You see, Bonhoeffer came to the U.S. soon after a pastor in New York City made some waves. His name was Harry Emerson Fosdick. Listen to what Eric Metaxas writes about him. Fosdick had been the pastor at New York's First Presbyterian Church. When in 1922, 1922, he preached an infamous sermon titled, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? In it, he laid out a kind of Apostles' Creed in which he expressed his serious doubts about most of the historic assertions of the Christian faith, including the virgin birth, the resurrection, the the divinity of Christ, the atonement, miracles, and the Bible is the word of God. This sermon was the opening salvo in a battle that would rage particularly hotly through the 1920s and 1930s. The local presbytery immediately conducted an investigation, but as a son of the money East Coast WASP establishment, Fosdick had little to fear. His defense was conducted by another establishment scion, John Foster Dallas, who would serve as Eisenhower's Secretary of State and whose father was a well-known liberal Presbyterian minister. Fosdick resigned before they could censor him, and he was given the pastorate of the fashionably aggressive, I'm sorry, fashionably progressive Park Avenue Baptist Church, where John D. Rockefeller was a prominent member, and whose foundation's philanthropic arm was run by Fosdick's own brother. When we start compromising Scripture, that's what happens. When we start cutting out parts of Scripture, we go a long way very fast. We have to stand on the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us to use the Bible to teach, correct, rebuke, and instruct in godliness. Bonhoeffer came to America, and his first impression was this mess with Fosdick. He thought we were all people who compromised Scripture. Ironic that usually, even then, it was the European churches that were known to compromise Scripture. But Bonhoeffer, even coming from Europe, saw what was going on in this church in New York City, and he didn't like it. There's another Scripture which I've been convicted to pray, which I wish to talk about today. 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So I will pray something like, Lord, I ask that myself, Megan, Mercedes, and Abigail, and our descendants will live out 2 Timothy 2.15. I ask that we will all be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as a workman or woman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. By the way, when we are praying, you don't have to get the scriptures exactly right. You can paraphrase. This passage is saying to be earnest, be earnest as we work so that we can accurately handle the word of truth. We as Christians must get into the scriptures more and more. We must not compromise the Bible. We must live it. It's not enough to believe the Bible. We must live the Bible. We must make the Bible a part of us. As that Psalm 119.11 said, we must memorize it, make it a part of us. We must be knowers of the word and doers of the word, as James says. We must study the scriptures 
so that we correctly handle the word of truth, as Paul said. Another passage which I pray, which I'm not going to talk much about, is 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. We are called as a church to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove and rebuke and train with great patience and instruction. That's 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I pray that myself and Megan and our children and descendants, I pray that our church holds true to correct biblical preaching. We preach the Bible. It's so valuable because it's inspired. It comes from God. We must remember that. God's ways are best. They are best for me. They are best for my family. They are best for us. I believe that. If I believe that, then it must follow that I want to pray. I must pray that my descendants live and submit and surrender to God's ways. First, I must pray that I do the same. God's ways are found in his word. I believe the Bible could change a whole civilization. Chuck Swindoll shares this story. The Bible can change not only a life, but an entire lifestyle. Most of us have heard the story of the mutiny on the bounty. But few of us have heard how the Bible played a very vital part in that historical event. The bounty was a British ship which set sail from England in 1787, bound for the South Seas. The idea was that those on board would spend some time among the islands transplanting fruit-bearing and food-bearing trees and doing other things to make some of the islands more habitable. After 10 months of voyage, the bounty arrived safely at its destination. And for six months, the officers and crew gave themselves to the duties placed upon them by their government. When this special task was completed, however, and the order came to embark again, the sailors rebelled. They had formed strong attachments for the native girls. And the climate and the ease of the South Sea Island life was much to their liking. The result was mutiny on the bounty. And the sailors placed Captain Bly and a few loyal men adrift on an open boat. Captain Bly, in an almost miraculous fashion, survived the ordeal. He was rescued and eventually arrived home in London to tell his story. An expedition was launched to punish the mutineers. And in due time, 14... Fourteen of them were captured and paid the penalty under British law. But nine, nine of the men had gone to another distant island. There they formed a colony. Perhaps there has never been a more degraded and debauched social life than that of that colony. They learned to distill whiskey from a native plant. And the whiskey, as usual, along with other habits, led to their ruin. Disease and murder took the lives of all the native men. And all but one, all but one of the white men named Alexander Smith, Alexander Smith was the only one to live. All the other white men died, and all of the other native men died. Just Alexander Smith lived. He found himself the only man on the island, surrounded by a crowd of women who were natives, and children who resulted from the pregnancies with the native women and the white men. Alexander Smith found a Bible among the possessions of a dead sailor. The Bible was new to him. He had never read it before. He sat down and read it through. He believed it, and he began to appropriate it. He wanted others to share in the benefits of the book. So he taught classes to the women and children as he read to them and taught them the scriptures. It was 20 years, 20 years, before a ship ever found that island. And when it did, a miniature utopia... A miniature utopia was discovered. The people were living in decency, prosperity, 
harmony, and peace. There is nothing of crime, nothing of disease, nothing of immorality, and nothing of insanity or illiteracy. How is it accomplished? By the reading, the believing, and the appropriating of the truth of God. Pray the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for my family, myself, my children. I pray for this church and all the families out of this church that we will love your word, that we will love you, Jesus. We will love you with our heart, mind, and strength and love our neighbors herself. They will recognize Luke 10. Even our enemy is our, our neighbors. Lord God, I pray that we will live 2 Timothy 2.15, that we will be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as a workman or woman who need not be ashamed by the word of truth. I pray, O oh Lord, that we will hold true as a church and our families and friends to 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, that all scripture, all the Bible is God-breathed. And so it's useful for teaching, for reproving, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May we recognize 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. As a church, may we recognize that. We are called to preach the word. Be ready out in season and out of season. Be ready all the time. Reprove and rebuke and train with great patience and instruction. Lord God, may we hold true to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. If anyone here has never accepted Jesus, you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day of salvation. When we recognize we are sinners in need of a Savior, Jesus, you give us a free gift of salvation. But we got to commit to you. Confess we're sinners in need of a Savior, believe in you, and trust in you. Lord, help us to make you Lord of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.